Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is the New Books and Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to James Curry, who has written Legislating in the Dark, Information and Power in the House of Representatives, published by University of Chicago Press this year. I hope that you really enjoy the interview that I did with Jim today. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, my name is Heath Brown, and I'll be talking to James Curry today, who is the author of Legislating in the Dark, Information and Power in the House of Representatives, published by University of Chicago Press. James, how are you doing today? Good. How are you? Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I'm doing well, and it was a pleasure to read your very very timely book. Um, it feels like it must have been difficult just to get you on the phone with all of the phone calls you must have been receiving from reporters. Before we get to the interesting book and what makes it so timely, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, so right now I'm an assistant professor in political science at the University of Utah. I got my degree um, at the University of Maryland. Um, and a lot of, during my time working on my degree, I spent a couple stints up on Capitol Hill, once briefly with the House Appropriations Committee, and uh, then once as an absolute congressional fellow with Congressman Dan Lipinski. And so those experiences were obviously very instrumental in, in what I studied and, and what's in the book. Yeah, no, the the book is great, and the, the actual, the meat of the book is great. The book also has a really cool cover. Um, I I like good covers, and your book has a good cover. <laughs> would you would you just describe it for us? Because it, uh, it it feels like it's like the the Chicago White Sox hat of the academic book world. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe you could describe it to us, and and what its what its origins are. Yeah, all the, I mean, I have to give all the credit to the University of Chicago Press for the cover. They just did a, they, I told them to, to go with it and run with it, and they did a fantastic job. Um, it's, it, for those who haven't seen it, it's, it's a, it's just a black background that has these sort of three gray pillars of it, as if sort of the pillars of, that are on the Capitol building sort of descending down, um, and also in the same gray, just the title and the, and, and then my name. Um, it's just sort of a very stark, you know, black background, gray columns. Um, I think it, uh, you know, speaks to the, the dark part of the title. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't quite look like the, the cover of the Spinal Tap uh, <laughs> album, but, but, uh, but it's sort of in, in that mode. And, and it, I think it's, it's just it's very effective. Uh, so let's talk about the book. And, and we're recording this uh, in, in the, the week of uh, all of the uh, drama on on Capitol Hill, which you must have mm-hmm. been uh, uh, paying a lot of attention to. So th- this first question, you know, I in some ways may have seemed unnecessary just a week ago. But th- the question is, what is the leadership in the House supposed to do? Uh, what has uh, what has been their job in in the past? Because I think we uh, uh, maybe have forgotten what what these people do. So just tell us kind of theoretically what is the House leadership all about? Well, the House leadership, at least the majority leadership, is really about making sure that what happens in the House, what passes the House, is what's 
one, what the majority party wants, but also what's good for the majority party, at least in the opinions of the leaders. Um, they have to make these decisions about, okay, there's potentially all these things that we could try to get majority support for and pass, or that potentially has majority support for and pass. But what would be the best things to focus attention on as far as what's good for um, winning and keeping the majority of the House, as far as satisfying the various constituencies of the Republican Party, the various groups. And that, that can entail a lot, of, a lot of, you know, very sensitive decisions and a lot of trade-offs between different interests. Because, you know, as you know, um, the United States is not a parliamentary system where, where people are selected on, for the legislature on the basis of their party, where, the party, where people, backbenchers, don't just vote strictly on the party lines and, or, you know, necessarily believe in a strict party platform. There's even in times like today's where we have very unified and, and, and polarized parties, there's a lot of diversity within each party. And so the leader really, leadership in the House really has to manage that diversity and, and forward something that's some sort of coherent um, legislative agenda that's good for the majority party. Now, you did, you collected lots of data, which I, we want to talk about, and you also did lots of interviews. Um, in doing these interviews, I, w- I wonder if uh, when you interviewed staffers in particular, mm-hmm. and, and members as well, former members, um, is there a speaker who stands out, who, who just, you know, comes up again and again and again as s- someone who, who performed this job very well? Is there, is there a a person in the you know semi recent in history that that stands out to you as as um, having been effective at this job. That's a good question. Um, during all the interviews I did, there wasn't a lot of discussion of that of of a you know a particular speaker that might have been done very well or someone from the past. And 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 to the degree that we did talk about individuals, there didn't seem to be a great deal of consensus. And depending on who was being discussed or what time period you were talking about or you know, what issue you're talking about at the time, you'd get, you know, a variety of opinions even about the leaders, like sort of the contemporary leaders. You talked to some Democrats who thought that the Democratic leadership did a fantastic job um, under Pelosi right at the start of the Obama administration, and you would talk to others who were, you know, far less impressed or satisfied with their with their leadership. And the same was true for the Hassert House um, with Denny Hassert and... Um, Tom DeLay and 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 even then under Boehner as well thereafter. Um, so I, that's a that's an interesting that's a tough question because there wasn't I mean really what came away was there are some people, some members of the House who tend to be happy with their leadership at any period in time and others who are less happy uh, with their leadership. Clearly, you can see that in what's going on today. Right, and this seems almost inevitable given what you found in the book. Um, that is. Uh, it seems like a, an increasing tendency of congressional leaders, majority leaders, to um, use certain tactics, mm-hmm. and these are these are the tactics that are sort of are, are hidden in the dark, as as mm-hmm. your title suggests. You measure these in the book. Uh, I wonder if you could talk um, about three of these tactics and and kind of conceptually what they mean, and then, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about their measurement. Sure. So the Three of the tactics, and they're you know they're interrelated because they're really all about exacerbating the difference in knowledge or information between those who are holding leadership positions and those sort of rank and file backbenchers who have to make a decision on what's being considered, whether it's in a committee or on the floor. Um, and three specific tactics that identify that 
come out of this sort of broader approach are reducing what I call the layover time of, of a bill or a measure, which is basically how much time members have to consider it, to look at it and consider it before it's brought up for consideration in a vote. Um, a rather technical process called self-execution, which is something that the, the majority party leadership can do through the rules committee, where they can change the contents of a bill via a procedural vote right before the bill is considered on the floor. Um, and the third thing is is essentially the leaders sort of taking advantage of um, how complex legislation can be in terms of its length or how it's written to sort of push a lot um, towards the members to consider all at once so that they're sort of, you know, maybe can't uh, spend a lot of time thinking about every single piece because ultimately the goal is to make these the, the, the rank and file have to look to the leadership for guidance and advice about you know where should they stand on these bills and of course if the leadership is the one if they're the ones advancing the bill they're going to happily oblige and sort of explain to their membership the members of their party why this is good for their party and why it should pass now the way that you're just arguing for this use of this tactic suggests that it's focused primarily at the rank and file of the majority party. Is there also an effect of this on the minority party? What is the relationship between the use of these tactics and those um, that are that are not in the, the leader's party? Yeah, it's, it has a huge effect on the minority party. Um, and to some degree, the, the use of them is about minimizing any effects of the minority party with respect to the majority party, which I guess I'll explain. So obviously, op- opponents to any bill largely come from the minority party or from groups associated with it. What the leadership is trying to do in, in, in accelerating things or trying to control information um, is, is try to undercut any reasons why their own backbenchers, their own rank and file, and the majority would, would find to oppose what the leadership's trying to do. And a big part of that is by undercutting any arguments made by the minority that may siphon off support from the majority. Um, so if the minority is bringing some, a set series of arguments to oppose the bill, um, by keeping the specifics of the bill under wrapped until late, it makes it more difficult for the minority one to do that and gives the majority less time to sort of hear about, think about, or or be swayed by these arguments. And instead, they're, they're much more likely to, to listen to what their leadership is saying, who they should trust more than they do the other side, and, and with the end goal of hopefully keeping as many of the, major, the majority party on, on the party line at the end. Now, now the leadership can't do this on every bill. There's the, this uh, can only be done on some portion of the bill. So, so what's related to the use of these tactics? What's what are the factors that that explain why the speaker would use this in it sometimes, but but not all the time? Right. So broadly, broadly, it's related to two factors. Um, uh, the first is just how important is what is going on in the House, the bill or the issue being considered. How important is that to uh, to the leadership towards what they're trying to do, the agenda they're trying to pass, the image they're trying to create for the party? Uh, so the more important items, the more likely they are to try to use these tactics to, to try to ins- basically ensure that something passes and it passes in the way that they, they want to see it. And second is is basically the likelihood that there's going to be other voices or other people trying to attack or change what they're trying to do. So an, an issue or a bill that's going to likely to draw a lot of political attention from other groups or from those in the minority or that may likely stir up controversy um, if it were 
considered under an open process where there's lots of debate, debate and lots of time for voices to interject themselves. Um, the majority is more likely to try to keep things short and sweet and, and push something through in a more um, closed fashion uh, under those circumstances as well. Now, the, the consequences, it seems, according to your book, is that um, the, it's, you know, the, the opposition is going to uh, grow larger, but that the, the majority party is going to hold itself together uh, because of the way that these tactics take information away from the rank and file and really centralize it. Are there any other consequences of, of doing this? Does, uh, you know, just looking at what's going on right now in Washington, is this at all related to, to these tactics? Is, is the dissension that's going on within the Republican Party right now related at all? to the use of these tactics by recent speakers? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, so I, I, something I talk about later in the book is that these tactics only work if members trust their leadership and what their leadership is telling them. Um, but at the same time, these tactics tend to have the possibility of eroding that level of trust among certain members of the party, particularly those who are inclined to or less inclined to agree or think that they might agree with what the leadership wants to do with the party. I mean, this is a, plays a major role in what you see right now with sort of the 30 or 40 so Freedom Caucus, uh, more hardline Republicans, and their and their dissatisfaction with John Boehner and then Kevin McCarthy or potentially anyone else who would take control of the Republican Party in the House. They don't trust uh, their leadership to push something that they think is good for them. And these kinds of tactics, which the leadership uses, you know, quite frequently on major things, which essentially shut their voices out of the process, only make their sort of dissatisfaction worse. Um, now, as far as why doesn't the leadership just not do these things then if, if, if the consequences that they anger a large part of their caucus? Well, you know, potentially from, from the Republican leadership perspective, if they, let things be wide open and, and, and lengthy and, and, and have a very open, informative debate in which these Freedom Caucus members get to make their arguments over and over again. Potentially, they'd lose even more votes um, from their the right side, the conservative side of their party. But it, it definitely is a, is a major part of the, um, the, the dynamic you see right, right now. Now, this this feels like it's it's a Republican phenomenon, but your data don't just are not just drawn from the near term. Is is this something that Republicans and Democrats both use as a strategy? Oh, yes. Um, I mean, I think it's for, for for what leaders face as a problem as far as managing their relatively diverse caucuses in the House. This, I think this is to some degree a necessary strategy if you want to keep everyone together and push through a platform. And so, yeah, the data in my book and the interviews as well talk about Democrats and Republicans using this, these types of strategies, whether when their party, when their party is in the majority and using them as party leaders and as committee chairs. So I think it's a pretty, as one of the interviewees told me, it's, it's sort of, this is sort of the oldest trick in the book, sort of keeping things under wraps and then bringing them up at the last second and telling people, oh, we're going to vote on it soon. So, you know, take a few minutes to think about it, then we're going to vote. Um, I think it's just a good way to try to get people to vote yes um, when there's a possibility that if they thought about certain aspects of it, they may be less likely to do so or may even vote no. 
And and for this reason, do you expect it to continue at the same rate it had been used, or and and we don't know at the recording of this who's who's going to be the next speaker. But is there any reason to think that that the one of the results of of the choice is going to be a reduction in this strategy, or, or maybe the opposite is the case? What what do you see in the future? It really depends on who they pick. I and and I think if they pick somebody who's has to, who gets the speakership by promising. A more open, uh, sort of regular order of things, a more uh, deliberative process, then maybe in the very short term you get a House of Representatives that uh, where these types of tactics are less common. But I don't think that would last very long because whoever takes control, whoever takes the helm, is going to find that these things, from the leadership's perspective, are a necessity if they want to have any legislative success and they want to have legislative success. Um, I think as I talk about at the back of the book, a, a, an, an upside of these tactics is that the House is pretty efficient about taking up issues and passing them. Um, the downside is that not everybody really gets to be truly involved in the process or that it's very deliberative. Um, and so I think potentially, depending on who they pick, if they pick someone who promises a more open process, you may in, initially get one, but I can't imagine that would last a very long time. Uh, Jim's book is Legislating in the Dark, Information and Power in the House of Representatives, published by University of Chicago Press. Jim, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for having me.